0: Well thank you so much worship team leading us this morning, it's great to worship together as God's people on Sunday mornings. Well, today we are going to be continuing our time in the Gospel of Luke and we're going to be talking about Jesus today, oh we talk about Jesus every day here, but we're talking about Jesus and we're going to be talking about an interesting um, thing, I think, that you'll find fascinating. Now when we talk about, uh, most Christians believe that there's some type of a relationship between what we see in the Old Testament as the Sabbath, and what we see in the New Testament as the Lord's Day. Now of course there's a whole lot of disagreement on this over the history of the church, and we're going to leave that all to the end today, so you don't have to worry about that. So at the very end I'll give you a quick summary of, of all of those things, but we know that it's about two things primarily. It's about worshiping the Lord, and it's about resting in Him. And that's what it's about. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus and His addressing of the Sabbath question. He is Lord of the Sabbath, as we will learn this morning. And the Sabbath was very, very important in the daily and weekly life of people in the times of Jesus, of course. Everyday life is shaped by Sabbath observance. And it's based upon, of course, God's law, the fourth commandment, and this, of course, has its foundation even in God's creation. And the Sabbath for the Jewish people is one of the very important signs of the Mosaic covenant. I want to just read to you that commandment. In Exodus 20, verse 8 and following, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You know, even today, for us, you know, this has shaped so much, 1,700 years of Western Christian culture and culture, and it's part of how we describe and talk about ourselves and what our identity is as the people of God. But you know, Luke, in his gospel account, is not primarily interested in teaching us a whole lot about the Sabbath. Luke is interested in teaching us about Jesus and who he is, and that's why we are here this morning, and he wants to show us yet another bold claim that our Lord Jesus makes. And that is, is that we are to worship and rest in Jesus because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. So let us pray. The Lord Jesus, we come to worship you, continue in our worship of you this morning, for you are our strong and mighty Savior, are the eternal Son of God, the one who became a human being and suffered and died as the righteous one for the unrighteous. For you have brought us to God and have given to us your very righteousness that we can stand justified before the Father eternally. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are Lord of the church, that you are the Lord of our lives, that we will see today that you are Lord of the Sabbath. And we pray that you would give us understanding and cause us to worship and rest in you. Amen. So Luke presents us with two Sabbath scenarios in our passage today. So we're in Luke chapter 6. You can turn there in your Bibles. It's also printed for you on your worship folder. Luke 6, 1 through 11. I'm going to read the whole thing in advance today. So on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, speaking of Jesus, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do? on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with them, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, He entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes of the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he came and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to destroy a life? And after looking around at them, looking around at them all, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So there's a couple things that we're thinking about, I'm sure, at this point is I mean, Jesus is elevating, of course, the need for mercy toward fellow human beings, even if it happens to be on the Sabbath. But Jesus, as we've talked about in Luke's Gospel, He's not just a reformer. He didn't come to make Judaism better. He was the eternal Son of God who came to fulfill all things. And He is beginning here, we even see, to change things because the new covenant would be inaugurated with His coming. And so, in these two episodes, the first one in verses 1 through 5, we can almost imagine Jesus saying to Himself on this little episode, Really? This is harvesting? I mean, come on, tradition has really gone too far. And in the second episode, saying something like, Really, healing is not allowed on the Sabbath. Well, tradition then has truly destroyed the Sabbath. Now, we're going to concentrate on Luke's recording of the episodes this morning, but Matthew and Mark have some things to say too that they recorded, and we'll integrate those as appropriate. But so far in Jesus' Galilean ministries, we've been following along in Luke's gospel. We've heard him preach his opening synagogue in Nazareth to the congregation there. That was the sermon that almost got him killed and thrown off a cliff. Then we heard about Jesus preaching and teaching in in Capernaum, uh, healing people, uh, uh, casting out demons. And we've also witnessed him calling some of his first disciples to himself. And we've observed him last week making great sinners into great saints. We've also recently in the Gospel of Luke seen that Jesus has been involved in a lot of controversies right off the bat in his ministry. Controversies about forgiving sins. Controversies about the fact that he'd like to go out and eat and drink with sinners. Controversies about what is true fasting and piety. Controversies now about what is the Sabbath really all about? You see, he's claiming to be God and worthy of worship and the one in whom we are to find our rest, because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so in this first episode, this first story, this first controversy, we're going to see the tradition really has gone too far. I mean, some of the Pharisees start questioning Jesus' disciples, we see in verses 1 and 2. And then Jesus inserts himself into the conversation and replies to those Pharisees. And so let me read the first section, and on a Sabbath when he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So they're traveling through this grain field. Now, as you may or may not know, roads or paths often pass through grain fields at the time. That's how people traveled. And the law, the Mosaic law, actually provided uh, that travelers could eat as they traveled on these paths. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So it's pretty obvious. This idea of going along and just picking some grain to eat is not harvesting and it's not stealing. So they were probably traveling the allowed distance on a Sabbath because of course, the Pharisees had rules for everything. And apparently, uh, you know, it looks like some Pharisees are on the same path that day, and they bring up this issue, although, you know, they might have had their spies watching Jesus, we don't know, or maybe they just heard about this incident, you know, it was common for Jesus to do these types of things, I mean, you can almost imagine him saying, hey guys, the spies are over there, it's time to eat grain, so let's do it right now. So, but Jesus would do these things because he wants to draw attention to himself and make his claims very bold. And so, Jesus and his disciples, maybe even Jesus himself, they pick some heads of grain, they rub them together, and they eat them. And it's really incidental why they pick the grain, although Matthew notes that they were hungry. But the simple event, which was in complete adherence to the law, becomes an issue because of a clash with the Pharisees' traditions, also known as the Oral Torah, or the Oral Law, or basically the rules that they made up, to try to keep the written word. So this casual and insignificant work, you see, that Jesus and his disciples are doing is really unnecessary from the Pharisees' perspective. I mean, it's not likely that they're starving to death. And so according to their tradition that they'd established, they were committing four sins at once. They were harvesting, they were threshing, they were winnowing, and they were preparing. Now the eating part's okay, I don't know how that works, but the eating part's okay. So the eating's fine on the Sabbath, but notice this fourfold allegation and uh, not making this stuff up. I mean, this is how technical the oral tradition had become. But you know, we know as well that this is what happens when human reasoning gets out of control with God's Word. And people start making up things that are not in the Bible as if they're holier and smarter than God. And there's no exception to evangelical Christians, especially in this country, right? And so when this reasoning in our human minds on God's Word and what we should require of people gets out of control, we're really establishing a righteousness based on ourselves and on behaviors. That's another topic for another day that we'll get into. But you see, it denies the gospel when we replace the gospel with works or things that we think are going to somehow gain a righteousness with God. It's not about gaining a self-righteousness with God. It's about getting Jesus' righteousness because only his righteousness is going to get us into heaven. Well, the Pharisees question Jesus' disciples, but it's going to be Jesus who answers them. A rabbi is responsible for his students. A teacher is responsible for his students. And Jesus seems to be setting a very poor example uh, with people. I mean, he ought to know better than this to condone such behavior. And so Jesus then injects himself into the conversation in verses 3 to 5 and answers them. And he says to them, haven't you read what David did when he was hungry? This is King David, not king at the time, but he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took in the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who are with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus responds with a very significant text in the Scripture and insinuates that they must not understand it, these teachers of the law. And he cites this example from David's life. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And it's during his early flight from Saul. And he quotes it here in the form of a question and concludes with a very bold application to himself. So I'll just read the little story to you. It's not that long, 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. It says, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter in which I'm sending you and with which I've commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There's no ordinary bread on hand, but there's consecrated bread, if only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men are holy though it was an ordinary journey how much more than today will their vessels be holy so the priest gave him the consecrated bread for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which was removed from before the lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away and that's the whole story so david entered the tabernacle probably on a sabbath because of the changing of the bread but that's not really specified and it's not really the point here but he and his men eat this consecrated bread, which is not lawful for them to eat. Only the priests could eat it. And in addition, as you may or may not know, David's lying through his teeth the whole time. Okay? He's lying. King Saul did not send him on this journey. He's running away from Saul because Saul's trying to kill him. So he's not on a mission for the king. He wasn't fleeing from him. So which violation do you think Jesus has in mind? Is it the violation that he's breaking the Sabbath? Is it the violation that they're not eating lawfully, or both maybe. But you see, think back about Jesus' disciples. They're not even eating eating what's forbidden. And in the story, Jesus' disciples were not hungry like David's men. And they were eating a lot less than David's men would eat. And Jesus' disciples were really not breaking the Sabbath. And bottom line, Jesus' disciples were not lying about what they were doing. So David of course, is recognized. And the reason Jesus uses this example is that David is the recognized messianic type that, that, that people knew they were looking for the Messiah to come and he would be like David. And so, in this case, if David is, holds that kind of, of awe in their theological system and understanding, which is correct that David is a messianic type, His need would, of course, outweigh what would be the normal practice of the law, it would seem. And so Jesus is saying, if they're going to condemn him and his disciples for their little offense, then they're really going to have to condemn David. And the problem is that neither the biblical text nor the priests condemn David. And so they don't really know what to do. Because Jesus is making it clear that the Pharisees can't explain this episode in the Scripture by their approach to the law. Because the Scripture doesn't condemn David and his men for what they did and their activities. Therefore, the Pharisees' approach to interpreting the law is flawed. And Jesus' approach to interpreting the law is sufficient. It's correct. And so, if an exception can be made for David because he's hungry and he has a legal right to, according to the written Torah, perhaps by their own admission, then certainly an exception can be made for grain picking, since that is actually allowed in the Scriptures. They've only disobeyed the oral tradition. So, in Mark's gospel, this is where the phrase comes in. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Jesus reveals the error of elevating traditions to the authority of Scripture itself. And if in that passage, the Son of Man has reference to the humanity of Jesus, most, most, sometimes it does, but most often it refers to the Daniel chapter 7 section about being the divine Messiah, then this is the ultimate example, Jesus and his men, of the Sabbath being made for man, it's being made for Jesus Christ and his disciples and all his followers. So perhaps the point Jesus really wants to get to is this. He's comparing himself and his men to David and his men. And he's saying that I am the greater son of David. I'm a greater king and I have greater followers. And so ultimately my people have greater freedom in regard to the law. In fact, it's so elevated that Jesus claims divine authority when he uses the phrase Son of Man to refer to himself because it references Daniel chapter 7 and that messianic figure in Daniel 7 who is also divine, God. And it applies, and he applies it in saying that he is the Lord and he's the Lord of the Sabbath, even. In fact, this came up just before in Luke's gospel in chapter 5, verse 24, when he talks about forgiving sins and that the Son of Man has authority to do this. Now, of course, it's ultimately based on the fact that Jesus died for sins and was raised to life for our justification. But this means that Jesus is the divine Messiah, and it's his Sabbath to begin with. So he can do whatever he wants with his Sabbath. That's what's going on in the storyline. Matthew then in his gospel goes even deeper to talk about all the implications, or many of them for, the, for Sabbath observance, for the temple, for how we understand prophets. But you see, Jesus is quite astonished, of course, and upset at this whole episode, saying, "What well, really, this is harvesting? I mean, it shows that tradition has gone way overboard and is not even reflecting the intention of Scripture itself. The point of this whole section is made very explicit. Jesus is the Son of the Man, and He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus knows the intention of the law. He knows its limits. These Pharisees obviously do not. Jesus has the authority to interpret the law any way He well pleases, and even rewrite the application. The Pharisees do not have this. And so... We as Jesus' followers worship Him and rest in Him as the Son of Man. He is the Lord and the liberator of God's people and the Lord and the liberator of the Sabbath. So in the second Sabbath story, the controversies just continue to build. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, is being proven yet again. The tradition has really destroyed it. The scribes and the Pharisees in verses 6 to 7 are watching what Jesus is going to do in the synagogue because all they really care about is is catching him. And then in verses 8 and 9, he confronts them in their evil straight up. And then in verses 10 and 11, he heals the man and the leaders boil over with rage. That's our storyline. Verses 6 and 7 begins. And on another Sabbath, not necessarily the next one, But on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand had been withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. So it's not necessarily the next Sabbath. There are probably many Sabbaths that Luke and the other gospel writers could have picked from where Jesus did these kinds of things. So he's teaching like he did in Nazareth, like he did in Capernaum. You know, he would get up, he would read a passage of Scripture, and then he would spend time explaining it to the people. And also realize that along with his powerful and authoritative teaching, Jesus is gaining a reputation very quickly for breaking Sabbath rules. That's what Jesus was doing. And he would even heal on the Sabbath. And so people would show up when he was in town because who knows what he's going to do today. This would be very interesting. So there's a lot of debate on how you would care for the sick at the time if it happened that's the Sabbath day and you had to care for someone. And now in general, the tradition at the time allowed for uh, deeds of mercy on the Sabbath only if they were life and death matters. So if they were life and death, then you could do something about it. But if not, you know, it could just wait till the morning. Now, the reason is there's plenty of opportunity, of course, to perform deeds of mercy on on six days. What in the world do you need to be doing it every single day for? And there are only two exceptions, of course, uh, birth, because sometimes, you know, you can't control that. And so... And then, of course, the other one that's really important is circumcision. So you can make an exception for those two things that are very, very important. Well, there's this man at the synagogue, he's a withered hand. We don't know why he has a withered hand. Maybe he was in an accident or something. But the religious leaders probably know he's going to be showing up. And so they show up. And these scribes, and Pharisees that we've talked about earlier, they decide the synagogue would be a good place to trap Jesus. They could trap him both in his theology and they could trap him in what he does on the Sabbath. Now, the only reason that they show up, we realize, is because they have these sinister motives. They didn't show up at the synagogue to worship God. They didn't show up at the synagogue to rest in God. They showed up at the synagogue to criticize Jesus. So, we as the reader are asking who is really breaking the Sabbath here now? You have an idea? So Jesus perceives their scheme, of course, and takes up the challenge, and he's going to turn it back upon them in a moment. And in this episode, Jesus is going to make the point that it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, contrary to the the tradition, which only allowed healings like this if they were life and death matters. And in fact, it's really interesting, the story, because this man doesn't even ask to be healed. Jesus just does it to him. And he gets used as an example for the leaders. And so then in verses 8 and 9, continues in the story, but he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And he's not happy when he says those words. So Jesus is aware of the thoughts and intentions of these religious leaders who decided to show up that day. And he knows very deeply what's in their hearts, because he's God, remember. And so taking advantage of the opportunity, he calls the man with the withered hand forward. And so the man comes and stands up there. Next, there's going to be some major public confrontation that's going to happen. And Jesus gives a justification for the healing before he performs it on the Sabbath. Jesus argues that just as some necessities supersede Sabbath traditions, which they all already know and agree to some of them, so does healing mercy. That's a necessity. And Matthew here has the argument about rescuing a sheep in the pit on the Sabbath. But although against their traditions, healing mercy on the Sabbath is in line with the Scriptures, and again the scribes and Pharisees have misread, misinterpreted the law, decided that they are smart enough and holy enough to add to God's Word. The truth is that it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. And in Luke and in in Mark's gospel, Jesus drives home the point very forcefully. And He asks this question and it's recorded for us elsewhere that He looked around in anger and in grieved heart. Is it more legal on the Sabbath to do good or harm or to save a life or to destroy it? This is a question that has options but no options. This is an attacking question on purpose. Jesus even seems to be saying that to not do good when you have an opportunity to do good on the Sabbath, that's the real sin. Don't miss Jesus' implication that they are actually advocating harm. That's what he's insinuating. He's insinuating that they are the ones that are destroying people's lives. And even if the healing could wait, wouldn't it be evil to do so? I mean, the good could be done right now. Why not just do it? And then Jesus heals the man, and the leaders boil over with rage in verses 10 and 11. And after looking around at them all, so the man's standing right there. And Jesus looks intently at the whole crowd before he makes his point. And he simply says, stretch out your hands. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and, and discussed with one another how, what they might do to Jesus. Jesus is making the most of the situation. He planned it, of course. He's looking all around, gazing at each person in the synagogue. Mark records it this way. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. Notice again in Luke's gospel, Jesus healed the man's withered hand in a sense with a word. I mean, technically it's four words, but with a word. We've seen this in Luke so far already, so many times. Jesus just says things and they happen. And interestingly, we're not told anything about whether the man had faith beforehand or he has faith in Jesus afterward. And we're not told anything about the amazement of the people, which Luke seems so interested in always recording. This proves Jesus' authority as the Son of Man and the Lord of the Sabbath, which has already been what we've been talking about in this section of Luke. Notice also that when you think about it, did Jesus really actually do anything on the Sabbath? No, He didn't do anything. All He did is say something. He didn't even do anything. From a human perspective, God's the one who did the work. Maybe they should blame Him because he worked against their Sabbath traditions. By God's healing, Jesus' Sabbath principles are confirmed and then in the synagogue of all places. On another occasion, Sabbath occasion as well, John's gospel records in John chapter 5, verse 16 and following, and for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working even still and I myself am working." Very purposeful. God works and Jesus works. The scribes and the Pharisees are filled with this mindless, irrational rage. They're livid over this whole situation because they've been shown up in public, of course, by by this very bold claim of Jesus, and their whole religious traditions are are starting to be attacked, and they start to see that Jesus is a very serious threat to the Judaism that they've constructed, And their authority and their power over this whole system that they've created. And so they discuss what to do with Jesus. Mark indicates that they're seeking to destroy him already. Luke enjoys telling us the story gradually about the death plot that they have against Jesus. And so it just sort of unfolds gradually in Luke's gospel. But here we see that perhaps this anger and this intent to kill Jesus... Started way earlier in his ministry than sometimes we think it did. Sometimes we think it's only at the very end. But they're already plotting on how they're going to take care of him. You see, tradition has truly destroyed the Sabbath if you can't even heal somebody on that day. And Jesus is showing that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, that he brings the right interpretation, and he keeps the proper observance. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, again. He restored the Sabbath they destroyed. And more than that, he's implying that he's going to be bringing in some pretty radical changes, things that people could never imagine, because the old covenant is about to be replaced by the new covenant in his blood. And more than they can ever imagine is going to be be brought to fruition, because in the new covenant, we will learn that Jesus is the rest that his people need. He is our rest now and eternally in the kingdom. He is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And all of us must worship Him and rest in Him as the Lord. Now, in our last episode in Luke, Jesus talked about the new age of the history of redemption He was bringing in. And I mentioned it briefly last week, but if you look right before in your Bibles, before chapter 6, verse 1, I mean, we were already set up for this whole Sabbath discussion by Jesus' very own words that Luke records for us in this last episode. And in Luke 5.36 it says, and he was also telling them a parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment, otherwise he'll both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. Secondly, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. You see, Jesus would be changing everything. And Jesus would really, truly redefine what is true spirituality in light of the kingdom that he brings and preaches in light of the new covenant that he would inaugurate and fulfill. And we need to carefully watch Jesus as we go through the Gospel of Luke and listen to exactly what what he says, and to imitate what he does. We need to learn well the apostles' instructions and the whole of the New Testament to be able to rightly grasp the fullness of what Jesus brings in. I told you at the beginning this morning that I would talk a little bit about the Sabbath practices in the history of the church. Church history is one of my favorite things to study, so uh, lucky you, you get to hear things occasionally. So. But the issue in our passage here today, though, as we've already noted, is about Jesus' authority. It's not really about Sabbath practices and and questions and those types of things, but surely we get a lot of help from Jesus, and especially through Luke, and especially in these passages. So, let's talk a little bit about this. Um, So, there's some kind of a reasonable worship and rest transfer we talked about between the Old Covenant Sabbath and the New Covenant Lord's Day. So, There are at least three positions. Uh, Maybe there are six. Uh, Maybe there are more. Um, But I'll talk about three or six. So so there are three main positions are that the Sabbath in the New Covenant, the Sabbath is still Saturday. Sabbath is still Saturday. That's one view. You don't find many people holding that view these days. Um, And they would argue that it's confirmed. And so, now there are, there were Sabbatarians uh, in church history, there probably still are some around, where this might be an okay position, I mean, obviously, at least obviously to, to most people, and this is not, this is not a viable position, but that they might be actually true believers. But then there's also, maybe it's a spectrum, this would be, you know, one B, there's also Sabbath is Saturday position that's a legalistic position. And it's not really just the Sabbath that these people are concerned about that you keep on Saturday their way, but they also approach all of the laws of the Old Testament as though you can be attaining a righteousness by keeping the law. You might have seen some of their buildings around. Anyway, then there's the Sabbath is Sunday position. And the Sabbath is Sunday position is the understanding that the Sabbath is fulfilled in the New Covenant, but it's modulated in a way. And so there's two really different ends of the spectrum here as well, so people that say Sunday is really the the Christian Sabbath type of a thing, um, you can have a very informed, theologically rich, and nuanced position on this that is very legitimate. But then what you've also probably known that you can also have a very strict uh, view and understanding of this whole thing, where basically people just start making up rules again and adding all these traditions to things, and it becomes a very strict observance of the Sabbath is a Sunday, and it's a Christian Sabbath, and so we need to keep it basically according to certain types of rules that we add in. Then the third position is the Sabbath is a principle. The Sabbath is a principle of worship and rest, and it's fulfilled in the New Covenant, of course, but it's principalized, not just modulated as if we just switched to Sunday. Um, even if it's nuanced, but that it becomes a principle of worship and rest. And so a couple different positions here maybe. Uh, one is it could be any day. And if you pick any day, it doesn't have to be Sunday. You could pick Friday if you want or Tuesday. Um, and then more, more, more people pick, pick the position that there's really no day. And the idea is, is that the Sabbath has been completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the Lord's day, Sunday, is an expedient time for the people of God to gather as a community of believers to worship the Lord together, to pray together, to hear his word together. And so those are the three basic positions that have been part of church history. Now I want to give you a brief general overview of how we got to where we are today. And this is a very brief. Believe me, it's very brief. And, of course, you could read books forever on this topic. But um, So a brief general overview on how we got to move from Sabbath, Old Covenant, to The Lord's Day, Sunday, is this. So, in the Bible itself, which is a good place to begin, is that we see that the Lord's Day is observed in three passages. We see it in Acts 20, we see it in 1 Corinthians 16, we see it in Revelation 1, and it's called the Lord's Day. Now, it's not clear, though, in the Bible whether this was an abrupt shift or a gradual shift by the disciples of Jesus to move from worship on what would have been under the Old Covenant, Sabbath, to what would then be the New Covenant, Lord's Day. And the reason that's picked out is because it's the day of the Lord's resurrection. And we see them meeting regularly. So that's about all we have there. Then the early church fathers, in the first next couple hundred years of the church, they talk about worshiping the Lord on Sunday as God's people, as a commemoration, both of the Lord's resurrection and of the day of creation. Now, It's also very important to understand that as the early church fathers talked about this, they did not use the Sabbath under the Old Covenant as an argument. That wasn't part of the argument. There was some comparison to simply just encourage people to be out worshiping, but it wasn't talked about as somehow a transfer. It wasn't until the 4th to 6th centuries that Sunday becomes the official day of Christian worship, and there are very clear comparisons that the Sabbath of the Old Covenant should be understood as worship on Sunday by Christians. And Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. That's when that came into being. And then the medieval church just continued this viewpoint. So it wasn't until the Reformation came along that then there was finally a disassociation again between the Old Covenant Sabbath and the worship on the, in the New Covenant on the Lord's Day, the Sabbath-Sunday idea. In other words, the Reformers are going back to what you had from the early church fathers in the the scriptures as our evidence. And so Christ fulfilled the Sabbath. And so the only reason, the real reason we worship on a Sunday is because that's an expedient day to do it. It's not because it's the Sabbath. But then the confessions that start being rolled out after the reforming period are a little bit stronger on the Lord's Day. For example, the the Westminster Confession we'll talk about the Lord's Day Sunday as, quote, the Christian Sabbath, unquote. So it gets a little bit stronger. And then the Puritans, more reformers, took up the Sabbath and the Lord's Day comparison more strongly. And so we usually talk about the groups in England, in Scotland, Holland, and right here in America. And so there's a lot of impact on the, from their teaching and a lot of confusion over the past what three centuries, because of this. But today, most scholars understand what we would call a new covenant view, and that is going back again to the biblical evidence, the early church fathers who had a closer understanding of things, and the reformers who rediscovered the gospel in its clarity, that the Sabbath is fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's fully fulfilled. And so there is no formal, real relationship between the Old Covenant Sabbath and the New Covenant understanding of worshiping on the Lord's day. So we worship together on that day because we are worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ and we're finding our rest in Him and our joy in Him. So I hope that's helpful. If you have more questions, I'd be glad to talk to you about it. But Jesus is the one. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, and we find our worship and our rest not in old systems that have no bearing on our lives anymore because Jesus came, or creating new ones because we think that our rules are better than God's, and imposing them on ourselves and on other people. So let's not forget the main point of Luke's text this morning, this passage of Scripture. Again, it's simply related to the question and why we're here today. So who is Jesus? Who is he? And what does it mean? I mean, Luke's been answering this question. It's been controlling his storyline all along, even in the pre-ministry section and in the first few chapters of the book. But most recently, as he talks about Jesus launching his ministry and starting in chapter 4, not only does Jesus go about teaching, not only does Jesus heal, not only does Jesus go around casting out demons and doing miracles, but he forgives sins. That's the real need. Jesus changes the rules of spirituality and focuses all of them on himself because he is the eternal son of God who became man and would be our redeemer. We even see today, who is Jesus? He's the one who changes and commands Sabbath law and tradition. It's an amazing savior we have and what he came to do and accomplish. So who is Jesus today? We read in Luke, Jesus is the Son of Man who is the Lord, the Lord God. And what does that mean? It means that we have to worship Jesus as Lord and Savior and find our rest and our worship and our hope in Him alone. That's what our passage teaches. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we worship You this morning in great joy knowing that You have fulfilled all things on our behalf and have set us free to worship you in truth and in holiness because of your work on the cross in our lives and the granting of your spirit within us. We pray that you would fill us with joy and cause us to be ones that constantly are in awe of who you are, who want to worship you with our whole being and to find our rest in you and not find our rest in anything else, in any kind of religiosity or things that we make up that may sound good but really are just forms of self-righteousness. But that we would find our rest in your righteousness that you procured for us and that is ours for eternity. And we pray that you would be glorified in your church. Amen.